Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders, where you can learn the skills to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the lessons learned and the journeys of today's top industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Johnny Bentwood. He's the global head of data analytics at Golin, based in London in the UK. Johnny has a fascinating career where in the past, before being head of data and analytics at Golin, before that he spent some time being a chief innovation officer. He was a director for analyst relations before that and head of analyst relations going, going back even further. He's an extremely interesting guy, over 15 years experience and has worked with amazing, amazing clients like Facebook, Unilever, Heineken, Barclays, etc. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and please stay Stick around till the end, hear the message from our sponsors and show them some love. Thanks so much. Here's the episode with Johnny. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today we're speaking with Johnny Benwood. How are you doing, mate? I'm really good, Felipe. Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. No, thank you so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for quite a while. Now, um, thank you so much for making some time and having us in your lovely offices here in London. My pleasure. I wanted to ask you at, at the beginning about the early days in your career. How was that time for you, and how did you get interested in the data space and sort of lured in? I think if we take it back, you have to bring it back to school days of all things, when my father brought a ZX81 home with him, which had 1K of memory. And it fascinated me. I was at that perfect age where I was young enough not to be into girls like my older brother and to find what is this computer thing and how is that going to change it? And I loved it. And I was that original hacker at school who did everything I shouldn't do, but I explored and it made me curious. But because my father was in business, I thought I need to go into business. That's the right kind of profession for me. But this understanding of technology, this always creeped on me, always thought there's something here. So I found always find myself in this hybrid position between technology and business. And the questions that business kept on asking is why does this happen? What's happening? What should we do? Could be answered. And it's the application of data that really fascinated me. And that's how I got into this. It's thinking, how can I do the job better? If I think back to my earlier career, I was working on something and it just seemed bonkers. We were approaching a situation to find out who is important because they were popular. It didn't make sense to me. It was bonkers. So I said, well, why are we doing it like this? And the answer I always got was because that's the way we do it. And I think that first tenet of curiosity is vital to the person to be a proper data scientist or specialist or whatever you call it, because curiosity, questioning why you are doing something in a particular way is critical. But that's only half the story because curiosity isn't enough unless you've got the other part, which is courage. And that courage to act on that curiosity to say, this is wrong. We could be doing it better and I'm going to make it better. And that led me to become Edelman's chief innovation officer. And whilst I was doing that, I was continually questioning how we do things and what we can do better. But the part that always stuck behind it is using data as an enabler to make sure we get the most information to satisfy our clients. Now, I work for Golin. Golin are a wonderful PR company. And our job is to promote our clients and at times to protect our clients. That's what PR does. And we do that by combining the most effective data-driven approach to help our clients. Amazing. How did you get here? What was your background over your career? I suppose if I had to put a few marks, I think 
that's when I became a data scientist mm-hmm. full-time. The CEO of Edelman, um, he had a blog post called 60 Second View. And I said, I've got this idea. Why don't we do something like this? And he said, go for it, make it happen. And I did. That's that whole thing you had influence I just mentioned earlier. And then I said, well, why don't we automate this process? Let's look at all the different criteria that could define what influence is. And let's pull it together. The Twitter API has always been fantastic. I created something called Tweet Level. Now, the reason why I mentioned this is because MTV got in touch with me. And this is while The Apprentice on TV was just taking off. And they said, we're going to find our first ever Twitter jockey, social media correspondent, it would be now called. But we don't know who to say who's going to win this competition. So I want to use your algorithm to define who's going to win. It became Twitter, became Time's Twitter moment of the year. And that's when I thought, this is what I enjoy doing. So, and that won all kinds of awards. And now it's a case of, that's one thing we can do. Now, what else can we do to apply data to make us smart? Yes, exactly. How did you start to get interested in influence and influencers? The P in PR is not for press, it's for public. And if you think about what public relations companies need to do, they need to engage with different audiences Mm. who influence others. And those audiences could be media, or they could be mummies who have got kids, they could be anyone, but those people are all influential in their own right. So understanding who those people are is critical. But also understanding the customer. Who do they want to listen to? Who do they respect? What do they like? And we're at this wonderful stage where, for the first time ever, CMOs are spending more on analytics than any other discipline. And that's amazing. I think this is the best time to be in data. I have been in this industry for over 20 years. I've seen lots of different professions within a company have their beauty time. I've seen the creatives have their time. And I'm not saying anyone is more important than the other. But at the moment, I couldn't think of a better time to be in data because CMOs are spending more of their money than ever before in analytics. And you have a look at what Forrester said this year. They said in 2018, it is the year of reckoning. And that not just applies to PR. What they're saying is you've got to prove what you're doing. And we're going to discuss this quite a bit. How do we prove the value? And this is one of our differentiators because a lot of people use data purely in a descriptive way. This is what's happened. And they use some of the smartest technologies, they use some of the smartest algorithms and approaches to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. But being descriptive in its use of data is just part of it. And I always say that gives you a mark of six out of 10. Even if you use the most advanced tools and technologies and approaches out there, to be truly smart, you need to go from descriptive to prescriptive. And this is where we use data to analyze the past. We do regression analysis, we use neural networks, we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to understand what's happened in the past to predict what will happen in the future. And to set the goals about what we should be talking about, who we should be engaging with, what kind of message works, why we should be talking about it, what channel we should be using, so we understand it. To figure out if we were saying message A or message B, which one is going to be more effective before we even start. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from descriptive to prescriptive. And then let's Let's take it a stage further. Let's go from prescriptive to predictive. So descriptive, prescriptive, predictive. And this is where we say what will be happening. A lot of people organize their plans and they do it and they fixed and it's like a juggernaut and it doesn't move. Well, those days are over. I don't want to find out a month after somebody's completed communications campaign that I wish we would have done that because it would have done better. That's ridiculous. Yes. We have information that we can get right now. So let's take advantage of it. We are continually absorbing information. 
continually understanding what things could happen and will happen and predicting it. And that opportunity to course correct or take advantage of opportunities is amazing. Mm. To identify issues before they become a crisis so we can mitigate it. This is the predictive part of it that is becoming more critical than ever. So we use data not just to be an evaluation tool, but to undescriptive, but to use it to help set the goals, to predict and prescribe what we should be doing. Amazing. What is the difference in approach or mindset or application that people could be thinking about to move from doing work in a descriptive way to prescriptive or predictive? I think if anyone ever does something and say that's good enough, if that's their mindset, they haven't got the right approach. I need someone to say, is this it? I think the question that I need someone to have, if someone is thinking this is the profession for me, it's a few sort of phrases I like to say. If anybody looks at the work I do and say that's interesting, to me, they've just insulted me. For a data scientist, the word interesting is one of the worst insults you can give because it means it's got no value. It's got to be useful. So you're talking what, how it should someone be. If they're looking at some work and say, well, that's interesting, I don't care. Go ahead and do it again. It's got to be useful. What is the point you're trying to make? Now, within a PR industry, it comes down mm-hmm. to two questions. People need to look at it and go, so what? So what does this mean? That's the useful part. Mm-hmm. And that takes you part of the way along the journey. But for being even smarter, we go from so what to therefore which is what should we do with it? So this is what it means and therefore we should do this as our plan. You see, I do not want my data science teams to hide behind charts and graphs and PowerPoint slides because it's great that all that information helps them form an opinion. But you know what? My audience, our clients just need to know what do I need to know and what should I do? And that needs to be tangible. You need to have that evidence there to back it up, but they don't need to see it unless they ask for it, of course. That's exactly because you're making something that is quite complex, quite labor intensive in terms of the analysis and finding the insights. And you want to show that to the client in a simple way, in a digestible way that really hits home on those two questions that you mentioned. How do you go about doing that on finding what your clients are going to value most, what's going to help them the most and deliver value and then present it to them? I think we need to Let's just look at, think about Golin as a PR company. Mm-hmm. A lot, Golin operates by breaking down the walls of old approaches. So traditional PR companies have an account management structure. They have an account director, PR, account managers, and lots of council executives to support. And they may bring in specialist people to help them. I think that's outdated. You need to have people who specialize. Think of it like driving a car. You've got someone in the car. You've got four people in the car. You've got someone who's really creative, someone who's really good at connecting different influential people, someone who's really good at speaking with the clients and the account, understanding them deeper than everything, and someone who understands data. Now, all of them are in the car. All of them are driving. All of them are participating. And it may be sometimes one person is driving the car and the other people in the back seat. But everyone's still part of that journey together. And that's the approach that we follow. And I mentioned this because when we work with our clients, we can't just have data coming in right at the beginning and then, thanks very much. We can't have that car with someone just leaving a post-it note on the dashboard. <laughs> we need to be part of that journey. We need to understand the client, understand the customer. And to do that, we need to go a step further again. Now, this is where another and list, I think it was Aberdeen said, that companies that adopt a customer journey approach have a 50% increase in their marketing efficacy. 
So you mentioned to me, how do we do this? What we do is we believe in the customer journey approach. We're not just going to do random activities. We do things depending on what parts of the customer journey are we focusing on. We're trying to increase awareness. We're trying to look at consideration, we're trying to change people's attitudes, encourage purchase, promote advocacy. By focusing on those different objectives, we do different tactics. Feeding into that is the data that helps define what we should be doing and evaluating whether it's been successful. So how do we do it for clients? We make sure we understand what they need. We're not going to screw random stuff. We're going to do the right activity and measure it in the right way and help use data to define what we should be doing, driving and fusing that with creativity to make sure we have the most compelling work. Extremely exciting. How do the clients react to that? Because it's a huge shift from traditional PR. I think it's been like a Nirvana moment for many of them. <laughs> some of them already get it, and it's great. But some say, why are we just doing random stuff? Let's do the right activity. I've seen other agencies who may not do this approach, and suddenly they're more accountable. It's like, well, have we shifted the needle there? And it's like, well, if not, why not? And because we can now go to clients and say, we can focus your objectives with specific tactics and strategy, and we've got the data to make sure we're going to do it right and to evaluate whether we've been successful or not. Not everyone does that. And I'm amazed. It seems basic to me. And just because it's top of my mind, let me explain something that really gets on my nerves. When people say, come on, it's not rocket science. Well, you know what? It is rocket science. And that is how we talk about our team. When I'm hiring, I'm asking for rocket scientists. When people say, what are we doing? We're bringing rocket science to PR. Because this is rocket science. This isn't something that anyone can do. This is something that has a defined set of skills that can bring massive value. But there's always a but. So in the goal in which are 1,500 employees, we only have a limited number of rocket scientists. But that doesn't mean only those people should have access to my data science tools. And this has been one of the massive shifts that I've tried to push within our company. Mm -hmm. Go back to when Google came out. It's the equivalent of me asking the head of digital, I'm trying to find out something, would you do a search on Google for me? If I did that now, people say, what the hell are you talking about? Do it yourself. And I think us as data scientists need to get off our high horse and say, we're the only people who can do all of this. So what we have done at Golan is we have created the equivalent of Google for our landscape, for earned media, for PR, and we're putting it on everyone's desks. So that they can find out those directional KPIs, those influences, those demographics, the information that counts, that is core to what a data scientist does mm. within the PR industry, they can do it themselves. And we call that the relevance radar. The reason why I'm stressing this is that we need to make sure that where you bring in those data scientists, those people with great years of skill and experience, is to do that real stretch work But that doesn't mean they're the only people who can do stuff. Let's get everybody trained up. Like everybody knows how to use Google. Everybody should know how to do basic data analytics themselves. And one of the things that interested me after listening to your great podcast is that a lot of the people who you've been speaking to, you know, they're amazing, but they're all at that super smart PhD level. Well, you know, I've got 1,500 people. They're not all PhDs, but they're people who need to be able to bring in data science to their day-to-day job. And that's great. I'm not going to leave it only to the team of specialists. Everyone should have those skills themselves. So that when people ask that most annoying question, can you just do this for me? Well, can you just is very disruptive. You can do that yourself now. And because they can do it themselves, they're starting to think, oh my God, I never knew I could do this. Mm. And it's, it's disruptive. It's changing the way they work. And because of that, it's self-sustaining. Because they're starting to show clients, you know, my team of data scientists may never get in front of. They're starting to show them this stuff. So I want more. And so it brings in more work and it helps generate and grow the business as well. Yes, that's right. Because then you have such a wider, a bigger reach 
than you would by just having the data scientists do that work. So how do you do that in terms of are you guys have you guys built a, a product that the rest of the company uses or have you taken a different approach? So we're now getting into one of those quite contentious issues. Do we build? Do we buy? Do we ally? I've got pretty firm views on this one. We are a PR company. We are not a technology company. I absolutely do not want us to build. We are always going to be chasing the latest API. Instagram changes that API every few days, it feels like. I don't want to constantly having to be updating my technology to try and figure a way around it. Yes. The current strategy, and will change if necessary, is that we partner. And we have the most wonderful technology partners who are with us on this journey to help make sure we have the best data science out there. And it's a collaborative space. They are amazing at building what's necessary, and we have a skill in understanding what's needed. And that collaborative way of working is fantastic. Now, do I think this is where we'll be in a few years' time? I actually think a lot of the data will be on-premise. I think you've got companies all over the world saying, well, actually, some of the richest information I've got is with me. Why would I farm this out? So I believe there's going to be, I think, in a few years' time, all that data will reside on-premise and people like Golan, the consultants, will be going in as normal to the on-premise solution and telling them what it means because that's where our skills lies, what it means and what we should do with it. And to get the company as a whole involved in using data, there has to be a cultural shift. And to get people sometimes being aware of data, what data can do, sometimes removing their fears, changing their mindsets. How have you gone about creating that cultural change in the organization? This comes from with our amazing leadership, who have very categorically said to all our leaders throughout the world, we've got several goals. And to be where we want to be, to be that defining agency of the decade, mm -hmm. we need to have, as one of our goals, we need to be data-driven. And it's not enough just to say that. It means that we have to invest in the people, the technology. It means that we have to explain how it can be used. We need to show how clients are using it and enjoying the benefits of it. And we have to train people up. It's not enough to say, everybody do it. Yes. We are going around all the offices and we're training people. We're giving them technology. We've had to disrupt the business model of our technology partners so that it can enable usage. It is not just a lot of technology partners say, look, you are based on a per seat license or the amount of data you consume or the number of projects you run. That's bonkers. How am I going to start? I mean, this is an agency, which means we've got lots of different clients. Let's say we've got a prospect comes in. Say, well, if I want to try and do some strong analytics on this client, it means I've got to have another few users, another project, and they may not even become a client. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not conducive to encouraging growth. So we got rid of all those different ways of working, unlimited projects, unlimited or aggregated data across every single project and unlimited projects. And that way, it stops all the, all the problems like, well, I don't know whether we can afford it. I don't know how we can do it. If we've got an opportunity, it should be there for everybody. Yes. So we need to understand the barriers that's out there and rip them down. And how did the partners react when you're having these conversations or putting this forward? They want to be used. And I wanted to form a relationship with them that said, look, we're going to grow together. The more people have accessing it, the more data is going to be brought in, the more we're going to use you, and you're going to get more from us. And they're happy. And because it's a collaborative, it's not a partnership. We're not trying to screw them down for every single dollar. Our, their success and our success are the same. That's right. And getting people to, to see that, to value that as partners and go on that journey with you, I think it says a lot about both parties, which is great. It's got to be a win-win. 
And one of the things that has stood out to me is how much you like to challenge the status quo, doing things differently. So even, for example, walking around your office just before, you could see that it's not a traditional way of working. Could you tell us a little bit about that? We try to challenge every part of it. That idea of just because we do something in a particular way is the way it's all it should be done is gone. So just look at Golan. A few things that we do differently. Um, we've got unlimited holiday. People just don't do that. That's just one example of many. There's the gender pay gap. Uh, there's a league table of all the different PR agencies and what the gender pay gap was. We were at the bottom of the table. It's the best time to ever be bottom. We were the yes. only company where the gender pay gap was positive towards women. That's great. So if we are going to be truly disruptive, we need to live and breathe it. And that's our philosophy. It's part of our culture. Al Golan, uh, who set up this company, one of the things he said is fix it before it breaks. Whereas a lot of people say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's right. So that whole concept of fix it before it breaks is right at the culture of everything we do, not just in data, but all around the world in every single employee. What can we do to make it better? Is this good enough? If it's only good enough, don't want to know. Let's make this legendary. Let's make this exceptional. And that's how we work. That's fantastic. How about in your case? Because obviously I see such a strong alignment between the way that you are and the way that you work and the culture of this organization. But where did it start for you personally that the challenging the status quo, both from an intellectual point of view, as in like seeing what should be challenged and also, as you said, having the courage to challenge it? When early in my career, when I was using, I had the job title of Chief Innovation Officer, which sounds great. I kept on creating data science solutions and it took me a while to understand what innovation's all about. At first, I thought it's about having a great idea. I remember when I was very young, I was sitting at the dinner table with my father and I said, there's this thing called the internet. I think it'd be pretty cool if we set up some kind of cafe where we could, people could come in, have a coffee and go on the internet. And we talked about it. And we thought, now nah, I'll do my A-levels and then go to university and I skipped it. But that isn't innovation. That's just having an idea. Unless you make it tangible, it's the next step. So then I created something called Tweet Level, which I talked about before, which MTV used. Now with Tweet Level, it was a free tool that anyone could use to understand influence. So I made something tangible, but that wasn't truly disruptive because it didn't make money. So as we go on this journey, then I thought, yes. okay, we've got to make money from it. And it's also got to be repeatable. Now I did some work for Facebook, where we created this great data science solution that we plugged in there and we got coders, we built it. And we talked about build versus partnering and we built it and it was amazing. Until another client said, well, can I have one as well? And it's like, yeah, we can do it. It'll just take three months. I didn't say it would take three months, but I knew we've got to build it again. So unless what you're doing can be is an idea that's tangible, that can make money from it, that's repeatable and scalable, and we can prove the value, get people involved. I cannot be the only person doing everything. Correct. So we need to have a group of people who want to bring it in, who want to use it. That is great. Such a clear way to see the process of both innovation, but also entrepreneurship and coming up with new ideas. I like to think it's pragmatic. I've seen far too many people come up with yet another, this is a cool way of working. This is how I've applied data and we've got this great algorithm or we've got this new approach and people love it and it's exciting and six months later, no one ever uses it again. I don't want to be like that. I don't want Golan to be like that. Mm. I prefer to do a few things well and get behind it. There's something that's called shiny object syndrome, which I'm sure you're familiar with. As soon as something is created, I guarantee within a week, someone's going to say, well, what about this that this other person or this other product can also do? 
And I need to get away from that. There's always going to be something else. But what we need to do is say, but we have got this. And for 80% of what we're doing, it's better than anything else. But because we're using it globally around the world, it means that I've got my teams in Shanghai who are collaborating with the people in Hong Kong, who are collaborating with the teams in Germany, with London, with New York, with Mexico, with Canada. And this is how we work. We have the same solution that we can collaborate and we can share our work. Mm. And that's, if everyone's just doing their own thing, we can't do that. So part of our approach is making sure we get rid of that way of everyone has their own mini project that may do the slightly different thing. I don't care. I don't want that anymore. Mm. I want us to have a common approach. And as part of our data strategy, every year we review what we want in our data stack, but we change it. But we once we've said this is what we're going for, that is what it's going to be. And if people want another shiny toy, that's great. There may be an ad hoc need which will entertain, but otherwise it's going to be part of our technology review every year. Right. We're not having when I joined, we had the amount of different data providers we had that did almost exactly the same thing. We had 20 for just one use case. Why? There was no collaboration. It was expensive. So we part of what we had to do, it's dull, but we had to make sure the way we work with partners who helped us bring in the technology, helped us bring in the data, was smart. Everything was aligned with our financial year. There was no auto-renewals. Basic things like that just weren't there. So it's dull, but in order to get the entire company working, we had to all be working in the same direction. You have to have your house in order. And what does that technology stack look like at the moment? How has it changed in the last few years so if i think about how it's changed we've gone from multiple vendors they're just a vendor we're just someone on the end of a license to a few we've gone from being having a relationship where we're just writing invoice we're just paying the bill to having a partnership in a collaborative way i'm working with one of our partners and their chief data scientist to say this is what we need and we work on the algorithm together and we brainstorm and say no that bit's not going to work we need to do it like this because as i said we're not going to be building that technology but we do know what's necessary and that collaborative way of working with partners so that they build the tech for us our data scientists to use so that's one of the major changes so we've got fewer vendors but deeper relationships and we look at what different parts we need to solve whether it's bringing in different forms of data whether it's visualizing it whether it's bringing an ai level whether it's doing machine learning we look at the different areas now next year i know some of our focus is going to be more heavily focused artificial intelligence and that's great and i've already started exploring some partners but whether they can do what I need them to do because everyone does a beautiful demo and we need to really dig under it say can you do this scenario we're very much scenario focused as opposed to anything else yes that's good how do you tell apart where the the real skills are versus the nice demo you know what picking one thing over another becomes very emotional so we needed to be objective and it's pure data science way we benchmark tested them against each other we had a list of functionalities we looked at the different use cases we looked at how important those use cases were and we did benchmark testing. We didn't rely on the demo. We did it ourselves, and we thought, you know what? That doesn't work. This works in a way that you may not have considered and we did the right thing. And I always like to say it's never the technology, it's our application of it that makes the difference because other PR agencies could have the same technology partners, but how we use it, how we get that insight out of it, mm. I know we're doing differently to everyone else. And the reason why I know that is that our technology partners are saying that to us. Mm. They're saying, you are stretching our systems in ways we've never seen. You are applying data science to it in ways that is amazing. And some of the tangible results that we've got for our clients have been out of this world. 
Yes. But as a result, that's amazing. That is amazing. And there's so many things I want to ask you about that. One of them is, and something that you touched on before, around innovation in the sense of coming up with the idea. And then there's an execution part where you bring it to reality. What are the differences between those two stages and how you operate when you're creating an idea and then when you're executing? What type of things do you do in each stage? Within our team, I like to give everyone what I call the 20% time. And what that means is you've got a load of work they have to do every day. And I say, I need you to spend 20% of it not doing that. And I want you to spend that time thinking, being curious, reading a book, challenging yourself, thinking, what are we doing and how it can be done better? And the reason why I make that time as part of everyone's objective in the team is because they need a license to operate. I need to encourage them saying, this is part of your job. Make us better. So knowing that people are going to be appraised about whether they actually think, can is this the right approach? Can we do something? What should we do? I've got this idea, what can I do to run with it? Mm. Knowing that not only is that encouraged, but it's actually part of their performance, that's great. When people do have those ideas, we need to make it happen. Now, sometimes when you've got a company as large as Golan, somebody else may be working on the same thing. That's great, I'll put them together. Sometimes people have tried it before and they haven't had success. Well, let's learn why. Or let's say, actually, let's shelf this because it's not right for us. What I need to try and do there is make sure we focus on the things. Goes back to the graph again. Most of the ways I visualize my mind, there's two questions we need to ask. How hard is it and how much money are we going to make? If it's really easy, we're going to make loads of money. Top of the list. Really hard, but we're going to make loads of money. It's on the roadmap. If we're not going to make any money and it's really hard, we're never even going to entertain it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way we kind of work. We need to be thinking, why are we doing this? Is it pushing our goals as a company? If we do have good ideas, this is the time to do it. And people have got a license to operate to make sure it happens. We've got a set structure in place to enable these things to happen. Yes, which is fantastic. And how does the, the team have they taken to that? I'm blown away. Each week I feel like someone is saying, you know that idea that we talked about? Well, we've applied it for this client and look what's happened. And it's like, perfect. Now you've done that. I want you to train up all the other people around the world in this and let's replicate it. I don't want those great ideas being limited to one team. But in the same way, what I don't want to happen is lots of people doing random stuff that has no point. So we make the most of what's great. Not everybody has that courage or curiosity to do things. And you need people like that as well. But for people who want to have the curiosity to think differently, people who've got the courage to act on it, I'm encouraging them to do that. That's fantastic. And what's the background of your team? We've got people in our team who are data scientists from in-house companies like Shell, Microsoft, Nokia. We have got people who are ex-journalists. We have got people who've got worked at technology vendors. We have got people who have PhDs. I've got people who are library scientists who are specialists at writing complex taxonomies. The point I'm trying to make from those is not everybody who joins our team is a PhD scientist. Mm And that's fine. We've talked before about the different levels of who you've been speaking with in your podcasts. I'm trying to bring a level of data application to the masses. And that's great. There is a need for that beyond those people who are the PhDs. Hmm. So provided they have those tenets of understanding and wanting to use data to help, understanding that there's a difference between interesting data and useful data. People who have got can apply that knowledge. People who can understand and discuss what customers want, who the consumers are. That's important to me. 
diff. So the background is quite varied. And you've got some people who've been in the industry for years, and you've got some people who are just new starters, but I like this thinking. And that's great. This is an evolving industry. And I'm not just hiring data scientists. I'm hiring people who have a love of trying to understand how things work, make it better, and use data application and analytics to help drive our client's success. And what do you look for when you hire people for your team? I look for that curiosity. I look for those people who aren't curious. Don't look at data and think, what does this mean? Sure, there's a basic set of skills that I need to have, but I need a cultural fit. I need people who have got that inquisitiveness, that people who aren't going to send me 100 slides of different data graphs. I'm looking for that person who's going to send me one slide saying, this is what you need to know. Some of our positions, we set them tasks saying, here's some data, come back in a week's time, tell me what I need to know. And that's very telling. A lot of people do a good story, but I want to understand how it is applied. It's the application. That's great. And how does your team operate with the rest of the organization? Do you have a centralized model or distributed or hybrid? How do you guys work? Within Golan, we have this G4 model, which means we have different people, specialists in data, creativity, client-facing or influence-facing, and we are part of one team. So yes, we have different PLs within the region, but within each of those regions is one PL. Within the analyst community, this data community, I don't care whether the work is being delivered in Dallas and it's being done from London. The important thing is we do the right work. So we collaborate across offices and there's none of that, well, where's the budget? We work for the client. And if the right resource and the right people with the right skill sets for some work that is in DC is only available from the team in Hong Kong, that's where I'll do it. Mm -hmm. We need to be collaborative. That sounds like a really great way to have deep, trusting relationships with your clients. It is. And mm. the clients appreciate it. They want to have the best work. And we'll make sure that is delivered to them always, no matter where the people are. That's right. They know that you're there for them, that you'll do your best and you'll do that wherever it needs to get well, done. Because we've got a common data approach, a common operating system, we like to call it, across all our offices, we can collaborate. We've all got the same methodology. So if it work, we've got a really important deadline, we can start it in one office and follow the sun. So yes. we can get something that would normally take a week done in a much shorter time frame because mm -hmm. everyone has the same methodologies, the same technologies and the same approach. That's great. And how do you guys do the sharing of the work from office to office or time zone to time zone to get that round the world, around the clock work done? We're just used to collaborating. It's nothing more than we have got teams that trust each other and they just hand over and say, right, you're on from the next shift. Right. And we get it done. It's wonderful when you can see that kind of follow the sun approach. I think in the past, team clients were quite saying, okay, this will take four weeks. That time's over. The time when people are happy to wait for things, they all want it now. And I'm never going to deliver a piece of work that is average. And having that courage to say, no, we're going to do it, but now we can do it in this way. And we're going to get it done to you for this time, and this is what you're going to deliver. And how do you foster that trusting relationship and closeness within the team to get that close collaboration? I think part of it is removing the barriers amongst that have hindered collaboration in the past. Those can be financial, so people don't need to say, well, I can't get it, ship it from Hong Kong to France or Germany because who gets the money for the work? Let's get rid of that bit. One of it is culturally, where we approach things differently. Let's have the same methodology. But we encourage people to work together because when you give work away, 
you get it back. Yes. And having that bit of trusting each other, knowing that you're helping each other. Because I might be getting a team in Dallas to help me today and take some load off my back. And that's mm. great. That might be more burden for them. But in a few weeks' time, they're going to need my help. It's encouraging that collaborative way of working. Yes, that's great. And I wanted to ask you about the setting metrics and objectives for the clients. And because you spoke before around different stages where the clients might have problems or things that they want to address. And then how do you go to the next level of setting the objectives and the right metrics? To so let's them? go to the customer journey. Within each stage of the customer journey, awareness, consideration, attitude, purchase, action. Each of those stages can have set KPIs to define whether they are successful, as well as set approaches using data analytics to define the best approach you're working. It's not necessarily going to say it's not data by itself. That data and insight fuses with the creativity to help inform what they should be doing, to validate it, to back it up. So it's more to it than just measuring and evaluating. But if we look at those KPIs, we can use the most advanced data science to understand cause and effect. But it also helps define who we should be speaking with. Let's use that as an example. If my objective was to increase awareness, we may be using data to identify certain individuals or certain outlets or media types who have got a great reach. Because if you're trying to increase awareness, you want to hit as many people as possible. Perfect. That could be a metric. It's a very basic way of thinking about it, but yes. trying to bring it to its lowest common denominator. Mm. Let's move to another part of the customer journey. Let's look at attitude. If I'm trying to change someone's attitude and we have that same influence approach where we want to, said before, people with great reach, that's the wrong person to engage with. I don't want to go engage with them at all. All the research has showed us that to change someone's attitude, you need to have a trusted person. Trusted persons are more niche and more relevant. Well, those huge media outlets or those massive international influencers, they're not right. It's because there's niche people. Like yourself, you're a niche influencer in the data science space. Okay, you haven't got the largest audience compared to other people, but within this space, you're super important. And that's a great example of how different kinds of parts of the customer journey, we focus on different influencers. The data tells us who to engage with. The data tells us whether we've been successful. Because as a result of doing something, we see what happened next. We then use cause and effect to look at, we did this, what happened as a result? What was the engagement? What was the impact? Did people do something? And what do you see as the difference between prediction and cause and effect or, or causality in advising or in, in the use and advising what to do next? So this is where I talk a little bit about what are we trying to do by using machine learning mm -hmm. to say what is the most probable effect of what we're going to be doing. And that helps guide a plan. Whereas predictive, this is what's going to be happening right now and more short-term thinking. Some of the advanced work we're doing, though, is advanced scenario testing mm -hmm. using the solve AI. So and what we do here is we say we have got a message to put out and we feed that into our AI technology to say, if we do message A, is that going to be more successful for them a message B. A-B testing has been around for ages, but what we're doing is we're using data science to feed that into operating system to predict what will be the best way of working. So we're using that in a way to understand what will be, to help guide the strategy, help guide the message. This one is more likely to resonate rather than that one. We may try both and may say, actually, this one's working better. So let's course correct again. And that's great. That's right, because it means that as an organization, you're always learning and improving on the work that you've done in the past, and you're always evolving. I don't understand why people haven't been doing this before. I mean, that's the thing about our job. You look at the world, you think, why? Why are you doing it like that? It doesn't make sense. Yes. But questioning is only part of it unless you've got a solution at the other side. Correct. And what are the, some of the challenges that you guys had to overcome in order to operate in that way of always self-improving? 
There's a certain amount of inertia. People don't like change. I mean, ironically, for someone who's trying to be as disruptive as I am, I hate change, but I know it's necessary. And so that ability to change, to love change, to say this is part of who we are now. And when we're doing this, other problems that I've encountered is that you suddenly make people more accountable. And it's like, well, you know what? We're doing this. And people say, well, when you measure it like this, it makes us not look as good. Tough. I don't care. That's right. It means do a better job. In the PR industry, there's a few parts of data that are absolutely horrific to use. Mm -hmm. AVE is one of them, which is an advertising equivalent monetary value on a piece of public relations. You might as well just ask me as a point of correlation what I had for breakfast. It has that little, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Or impressions, which is the potential reach. So I was working for one client and their impression number was around several billion. There's not that many people on the earth. Yes. I mean, for come on. And when you have a look at what actually happened, when I have a look at all the known actions that's happened as a result, it's just a few thousand. So I'm trying to get people away from meaningless bullshit metrics and instead get them to use data science to say this is what success looks like this is a goal this is a target this is what you need to achieve mm. Great. And what are some challenges in doing that? Because it's a completely different way for a lot of people to operate where they always want the vanity metrics and they want whatever is going to make them look best. How do you turn them around to look at the real? It depends who you're speaking with. So often, let's say I'm taught, people like the vanity metrics because it makes them look good. Yes. When you speak to the people who write the checks within the clients, they obviously want to look good, but they want to get value for money. And we talked to how Forrester said, this is the year of reckoning. Show me the impact. They know when they get a 7 billion impression number, it's complete bullshit. <laughs> they, of course they know that. So they say, we talk to them and say, this is what success looks like because we can prove the value of what we're doing via different approaches. And we have the relevance quotient, which is our own algorithm that brings together all these different KPIs in one place. And they get it. They want to do the better job. They don't just want to do random activities because it gets a high vanity metric. And so they are all for it. But part of that means giving them a number that they can put their hat on, a number that means something to them, that shows that they have moved the customer journey in the right approach. But they know they are more accountable, but you need to give them something different. And sometimes it means having parallel systems working. It means here are vanity metrics that you've used for years. You can continue to have those, but let's also have these ones as well. And that, that example I told you before around mm -hmm. using the wrong kind of influencer because you um, for the wrong objective. Well, that's a really good example how he's saying, you know what? By chasing those vanity metrics, you're doing the wrong job. You're encouraging your teams to do the wrong activity because you've got a metric that is bullshit. So why should I go for a vanity metric when instead you want a smaller number? And this is a goal of what you should be achieving. So let's give them some instead of a vanity metric. Saying that is what success looks like. That is great because people naturally want to do a good job. And I think that focusing on vanity metrics makes them optimize for the wrong thing. Showing better metrics on what the numbers should be, that's a great way to start to change behavior and make progress. That's great. And I wanted to ask you, what was the process of building your relevance metric and algorithm? Obviously not what goes in it, but I assume that it would be essentially hierarchies of metrics or lots of different things that get combined. How, what was the, the process of building that in a general sense? 
lines, you look at what you can measure. And each of those different measurements have a different degree of importance. We collate those, we normalize them, we weight them, and we apply filters upon them. The data science team have been spending most part of the past six months mm -hmm. running correlations to make sure we get that weighting absolutely spot on. We need to have faith in it. If this is going to be guiding what we're doing in this relevance quotient, we've got to prove it ourselves. And works especially well, not just having a number by itself, but when it's comparative. So we say, this is you compared to this company, mm. or this is you compared to the industry standard. If you're going to be doing a job client, we expect your score to go from X to Y. And you know what? When other companies have gone, spent this amount of money, they've gone from X to Y, they have noticed this lift in engagement or sales or visits to websites. And suddenly we're providing a metric that they think, I can work with this yes. because it's actually linking to other parts. I can think how much I'm spending and what the result can be. That is outstanding. Oh, I'm sure clients would be loving that. That level of insight and certainty on the expected value and results of the work. Well, we're trying to, people want to have a know what their return on their investment is going to be. A lot of what PR does in the mm. customer journey is in the early stages of awareness and consideration attitude. Yes, we do stuff around purchase, but a lot of what PR does in those early stages. But if you only measure the purchase side, you're ignoring everything that's gone before. Correct. So we need to be able to show the important significance of those critical phases in a way that clients can understand this is what my return is. Yes. This must be quite challenging to other companies in the PR space. It's such a data-driven way of operating where you get to measure everything at such a, a detailed level. What do you see as the differences between maybe the old way of thinking or the non-data-driven way of thinking in PR and this approach? The biggest difference is that the work that we're doing now is both accountable and it's making sure and encouraging our teams to do the right job because it's not only the right job because it's linked to the customer journey because the objective, but that part of data is helping to drive the best ideas. Mm. Some of the best ideas, best creative solutions have data to back it up. And this is why I'm not just, a lot of what we're focusing on is data as an evaluation way of working. It's not, it's got to be also used to help inspire people, to help give people those thoughts, that creativity to say, wow, with that, I could do something with this. Now, I'm not saying creativity can't work without data. They can, amazing stuff. But some of the best stuff has data fused with creativity. Yes. And how do you achieve that fusion? How is that done between data and creativity? Well, this is, again, one of the wonderful things about Golan is that yeah. we've broken down those traditional account structures yes. to make creative and data and the account team and the influence team sit together. It's we're at this perfect synchronicity Correct. stage at the moment where a few years ago, we disrupted the entire business model to put teams like that. Mm. Then we hired amazing talent like Caroline Detman to head our creative leadership. And now we're doing the same thing with data. So now we, all these things are coming together and it's changing the world. It's changing our approach. That's fantastic. And where do you see all these changes going? So essentially in Golan, data-driven or PR has become data-driven and that's creating a huge cultural change in the organization or with clients. What comes after that? Where is this change taking us? Well, if you have a look at some of the recent acquisitions, mm -hmm. and we're looking at what's going on. So IPG, which is Golan part of, just recently bought Axiom. That is incredible. Mm. I mean, I am salivating waiting to think what I can do with this data because we've only just started scratching the surface of what we can do. So answering your question in two parts, where's data going and where's the industry going? As far as the data is going, it's going to be understanding the customer more, more and more on an individual level, no longer doing random activity, no longer 
longer doing um, basing on a five-person focus panel. We've got data come everywhere. Now let's make sense of it. So we're going to be more focused and it's only going to get better understanding the customer more. As far as where the industry is going, I think it's going to be partly where the data resides. We talked about the on-premise bit earlier about how we're going to be, for clients' own data is going to be fused into solutions a lot more. Obviously, I'm thinking of things from when companies have an agency to support them. Mm. Not everybody does that, but there's definitely going to be a fusion of own data and external data to help make decisions. As far as where the industry is going, disruptions have started now. We can't shut Pandora's box. And I see things happening quicker. I see things happening with data that are breaking barriers. The idea of, we talked about the silos that are being broken, the silos of geography, uh, the silos of how are people getting hold of information prospects. Uh, we talked about in uh, Hong Kong, it's a mobile first environment. Other continents, it's slightly different. So everywhere is different. We need to stop thinking of, I am just a social media expert or just a traditional media expert, or I'm just focusing on the UK. No one else cares. So more silos are going to be broken down. Data is not going to be for the data science team. We've recognized that here. Everybody needs to sit, make data as part of their day job. When some agencies used to have a digital team, so you used to say like, it's Golan Digital, okay? That's irrelevant now. Yes. Everybody needs to be doing it. It's now Digital Golan. And as opposed to having Golan Data, it's now Data Golan. We need to get away from, that's the data team and this is everyone else too. Everyone is using data. Yes, we have specialists who can do stuff with it that will blow your mind away, who can go deep, but sometimes directional data is just as important. Yeah only a limited number of data scientists and I don't want that scarcity of resource to stop people doing the right job and for a lot of the time they can do the right job using the tools and the training I've given them so yeah that's going to be a big disruption as well definitely and what do people that come from a non-data background what do you think that they need to learn in order to get to a decent level of data literacy to become that to be able to use data so bear in mind that when I'm thinking of things outside the data science team mm. and let's skip all that advanced learning yes. and Python and all everything else let's just focus on if people want to use data within the PR industry they need to learn a second language and that second language is boolean and being able to write strong search terms within the earned media landscape is critical and it's the most basic thing it's like being able to write a formula in Excel but being able to do that that's your second language it's no longer I can speak French or German <laughs> or whatever you need to be able to speak boolean so if you if want someone to have a skill across the other teams, that's it. Now, obviously, different companies are at different ways, but within the earned media, within the PR world, that's the skill I'm training people on. That is great. That would be so empowering for them as well to see, be open, open their eyes and their mind to a whole new world of search that you can do. It's true. Learning. And I'm getting messages on a daily basis from people around the world saying, I've used the relevance radar and I did this for a client and they loved it. And normally I'd have to book time with the data science team to be able to do this and they're busy this week. So it's going to be two weeks away. I needed to do something now and they can do that. Amazing. And I asked you uh, during the interview, we spoke about what makes a great data scientist. So before we finish up, I, I wanted to ask you, what makes a great data science leader? I think there's a few things. I'm a leader. I don't know whether I'm great, but I'm definitely, by nature of my position, I am one of the leaders here. So let me tell you what I think I'd like to be. I'd like to give people that license to be courageous and curious. I like to think that people should never accept the status quo. I like to think that you always have the customer as your goal. 
think, why are we doing this? I'd like to hope that we think beyond the data team to think about the entire company. So I suppose a strong leader needs to have all those in mind, but we've got to be also be make money from it. Having those cool stuff is only going to go so far if it's not making money. We're part of a company that the bottom line counts. So we've got to validate and prove ourselves on a daily basis. Also, I know that I don't know everything. God, do I know that. <laughs> and accepting that and loving it. So one of the things I've done recently is I've started a reverse mentorship. So mentors are quite common in every industry, but recognizing I don't know half the stuff I need to know. So I'm working with someone who is as dissimilar to me as possible, who is really young, uses all the kind of media tools out there, social that I don't even know about, definitely not on. And I speak with him because understanding what you don't know and loving that Mm. is part of the job. That's so true. And that would be so important. I was going to say in this industry, but thinking about it, I think that's so important in every industry to see like what is up and coming, what is something yeah. so different. So. And I think we need to back this up with the leadership who I report to. So I report to John Hughes, who's one of the CEOs of the company. I think you need that license to operate. I've said this before. So mm-hmm. I've got it because my CEOs firmly believe in the power of data to help transform the company. So I've got great leadership and great guidance and support. John Hughes is a complete geek as well. So we work and complement each other very well like that. Okay. It's never conversations that always go yes, yes, yes with each other because he's our boss. And we argue it out. We discuss it. We think, how can we do this? And sometimes we don't get anywhere. Sometimes we completely blow up the walls and start again. I love blowing things up. Let's make it right. Let's do the right job. Let's not just do what's been done before. Yes. It's amazing to find and have that partnership and that dynamic, working dynamic with your boss. That's something I think everyone should try to have. People talk about culture within a company. I don't think I realized just how good the culture was Mm. within Golan until I was here. It really is that special. That love of doing the right job, that culture of, let's do this, let's do the right thing. Good enough is rubbish. Let's make it exceptional. Let's make it legendary. That's a wonderful culture. That ability where they've looked at the barriers to why things couldn't work, like P&Ls within an office. Let's get rid of them. P&Ls within a region. Let's get rid of them. Can't collaborate. Let's just get rid of the things that don't work and let's foster a relationship that does work. You've got only 20 days holiday a year. Let's make an unlimited holiday. Let's treat people like grown-ups mm. and they'll get the best out of them. That's right. That is fantastic. I only have one last question for you. And I wanted to ask you about a takeaway for the audience, something that you would like data scientists or aspiring data scientists or people moving into a team lead position, something that you would like them to think about after this conversation, something to ponder. First of all, be proud of your job. This is rocket science. Let them know. Be really proud of it, but have the customer in mind. Have the end customer in mind because you need to be able to say, this is useful. Don't hide behind all the wonderful technology, all the wonderful algorithms and things that you've done. You need to make it simple. Make it useful, not interesting. Don't just say, so what? Say, so what? And this is therefore what we should do with it. And finally, go from, don't just use data to be descriptive, use it to be prescriptive and predictive as well. There we go. Amazing. (laughs) That is fantastic johnny thank you so much thank, thank you, you so, so much, much felipe this has been, been a wonderful discussion oh extremely extremely interesting thank you so much for sharing interesting <laughs> i can't believe you said interesting after all that i've been waiting to say that <laughs> <laughs> thank you no, felipe. extremely useful That's thank like you <laughs> thanks so much for your time okay. bye-bye now 
Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.